Thanks for joining us today on Open the Word with Circle of Friends. I'm Missy. And I'm Gwen. And I have my guests back with us again uh, for this episode uh, of our podcast. But um, this is Jess. She is a missionary from Southeast Asia. So we had you on last week's podcast, and we got you back again today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I've been waiting a whole week, Jess, just to hear the rest of your story. (laughs) We we got got off track. We got you off track, (laughs) as we often do. Uh, great conversation, but it has been really a joy to hear your story and hear how the Lord has worked. And as Gwen said last time, the uh, authenticity of what you bring to the table and you're willing to share, I mean, so many of us can really connect with that heart to heart for sure. Yeah. So how about if you take us back to what happened after Africa? And for those of you that are just joining today, she talked about her first uh, missionary experience with her her family um, and just feeling like she left on a parade float and came back just broken to pieces, Mm -hmm. Um, which I I love the authenticity of that because Mm -hmm. a lot of times we set out with one thing thinking it's going to be amazing and Mm -hmm. it doesn't quite play out that way. So pick up the story when you come back. Okay. So... We come back, and it's actually quite humiliating to come back. You come back to these people that you feel like just sent you off celebrating all how amazing you are, and then here you are, a complete failure, and you didn't do any of the things you thought. I mean, at, at that point when we left, I thought, my children will probably just marry Africans, will live there forever, and then we come back eight, eight months later, and there were no spouses because my children were still little, and so it was um, really difficult to face those people because of the pride of me and my husband, you know, like, oh, no, now we're not on that pedestal anymore. And you, when you talk about authenticity, I just one thing I wanted to share was I, I don't think I've always been so able to share openly, but that was one of the things that God showed me was part of my healing process is because when I came back, one of the things that helped me was we had a debrief mm. at our mission, and there were women there were women that were willing to sit around and share their failures mm. and their shortcomings. And it was in their willingness to be transparent mm. that I real- realized that the gift of brokenness and transparency. And why do we all walk around like we have to put on this facade? Because when we look in scripture, we don't see perfect people. Mm-mm. But at a young age, we're given these Bible characters and they're portrayed as heroes you know, nobody talks about the sin of Noah or the struggles of Abraham. I mean, we always act like they were specifically chosen because they were something special. They were only something special because God chose them right. to be in the line of Christ. Other than that, they were flawed human beings that needed grace and they needed sanctification and they needed his redeeming work in their lives. And so it was through other people being transparent that I began to be able to accept my failures mm-hmm. and I love that because you're right. I mean, transparency gives others permission to be real too. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it removes just the the facade that, oh, you're a believer. So now life is perfect. Yeah. Um, So after Africa, we came back to, we were from Alabama. We came back to Alabama and I told my husband, I'm never, ever getting on a plane and going anywhere with you again. So I'm going to be the best little missionary that I can in our back door. And I just got involved in children's ministry, and we started doing a lot of missional focus in children's ministry, and it was incredible. It was actually really amazing to see how God gave these kids a desire to want to 
help people in other places. We, you know, raise money for clean water for people in villages and things like that. And eventually my husband took on a job as a college pastor. And during that time, he wanted to take a team of young people somewhere. And so he contacted our organization. And within 30 minutes, a team in Southeast Asia wrote back and said, we were going to cancel a huge project if we didn't have somebody willing to come by tomorrow. And yes, we need a team. So he took a handful of students to Southeast Asia. While he was there, the leader of that team pulled him aside and said, I would like for you to pray about joining our team full time. So he calls me and he says, Jess, he wants us to come full time as a family. And he's committed to helping us work through and adjust so that we thrive here. And I told him, well, I just found out I'm pregnant. And so families with five children don't normally go to Southeast Asia, do they? And so, no, I'm not going. And remember I told you I would never get on a plane again. I have not changed my mind. I'm not getting on a plane and going anywhere again because I'm really good at surrendering. And obviously you can tell. (laughs) (laughs) So... So he comes home, and he just realizes the more he pushes it, the probably the more resistant I'm going to be. And I've, I've really had to work on my submissiveness. And so for two years, he didn't say much of anything. He just prayed. Well, one of the young men that went on that trip with him graduated with a degree in engineering, and he went on that trip. Right before they left, he met some women in a mall, and they were like, why are you here? And he told them, well, because he was leaving the next day, he didn't think he had to hold back. So he's like, um, I came to talk about the love of Jesus. And they were like, who? And they had no idea. They'd never heard that name before. He could not believe that. Growing up in the U.S., for him, the idea of somebody never hearing the name of Christ was absolutely foreign to him. And he got on the plane, and he was just physically ill. And he came home without even talking to me or my husband, resigned from his job, and was going to go back for a year. And whenever they shared in front of the church that we were at, he that was the first time we'd heard about it. He gets up in front of everybody, and he's telling the story of his trip, and he said, so I quit my job today. And every jaw in the church dropped because everybody was shocked because who does that? That's crazy. Especially when you're making 80000 yes, a year. your dream job, <laughs> you know. And, I mean, are you going to pray about it? Is that the wise thing to do? I mean, it was just something that you don't hear. It's one of those stories you don't hear of anymore. And he ended up going, and he we would keep in touch with him and try and help him and things like that. And one time he called and he said, guess what? You know what? The team meetings here, they actually all gather around and they, they pray, Lord, please send the bridges. And as soon as he said that, I was like so angry. My immediate thought was they should ask my permission before they pray something like that because I didn't want them to actually persuade God to convince me to go. That's <laughs> how I was thinking. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it didn't sway me. It made me very annoyed, and I just wouldn't talk about it even, um, even more. So we got really involved with the college ministry, and my husband um, then started working with um, a company in our city that has a lot of German employees, and he was their English teacher for the families. Well, that baby I had told you about, um, I, I lost that baby at six months preg- gestational age. So I was, I was pregnant, and then it was a whole lifetime movie thing where the baby was born in the bathroom, and it was, it was dead. And, and so it really derailed, it just derailed me because I had had four healthy pregnancies without any problems, and this was going along just normal, and 
I could not figure out why God would do something like that. And, and so you see, when good things happen, it's always like, Oh, God is good. And then when bad things happen, it's always like, why would he do those things? And so but there were so many beautiful things. This becomes another one of those Africa stories that I would not trade this that experience in my life for any anything because when I look back on it now, he was so faithful. And when I read the book of James and I think about our response to struggle, I realize I'm so so grateful for the struggles. Otherwise, I wouldn't know if I would have responded in faith. And it, yeah. it's, it's a way that God has assured me that I am his because of how I respond when my whole life feels wrong and my ability to trust him. And you just realize that the Holy Spirit does something in you that you're incapable of doing in yourself. Because mm. in myself, I could not have survived that experience. I remember coming home from the hospital the day we took the baby. I took it in Tupperware to the doctor. It, had, it was born like hours before my appointment. And I was so devastated, and, and the doctor was a man, and he was an older man, and he was so fatherly, and he hugged me, and he just said, this is a baby, and it's yours. You need to take it home, and you need to bury it, and it prayed with me, and I needed just to feel that fatherly kind of thing, figure. And I came home, and I was sitting in a chair, and we have a very close dear friend from Australia that has been on this journey with us from the very beginning, that's a whole nother story. I don't know if I can get into that, but she messaged me and she's like, I need to know what's happening right now. And so I'm trying to tell her what's happening. I'm, I'm just bawling and I'm weeping. And my eight year old daughter comes down and she's like, mommy, mommy, God gave me a song and I want to sing it for you. And she starts singing this song over me about bringing my brokenness to the Lord and my mourning. And the song, it kind of escalates. And in the end, we're all worshiping God because he's good. And that kind of became like our family theme during that time. And every time my husband and I were just overwhelmed by the loss, we would say, Gabriella, will you come sing, sing that song? And she would sing that song over us. And it was this beautiful moment of the Lord revealing himself to our daughter and using her and reminding us that he was so present, like he was there and he wasn't going to remove this pain because we needed to walk through that and learn to trust him even when it was painful. And I would not trade that experience for, for anything because I still reflect on that now only with joy. Like whenever the Bible says he turns our mourning into dancing, mm. that is really so true. Um, so that, that happened. And prior to that, my husband had been working with these German families, and he had kept telling me there are these women, and they're lonely, and they, they don't have anybody who will reach out to them. And I was just not really open to it. I told him I was busy with the college ministry. I don't have time for anything else. And there had been a two-week period after I lost the baby that I probably hadn't showered or gotten off the couch. I mean, I was a wreck. And one day, somebody rings my doorbell. And I was just going to ignore it. And they kept ringing the doorbell and knocking. And I look out the peephole, and here are two of these German wives. And I'm looking at the peephole, and I'm like, don't they call before they come? Like, if I wanted visitors, I would have invited somebody over. And I was not going to let them in, but they would not relent. So I had to open the door. And they came in, and they just sat. And I was a mess, y'all. Like my, I mean, I, I know I smelled bad. I had not showered. They sat down on the couch with me, and they didn't say, like, how are you doing? They didn't expect me to have an answer. They just wept, and they cried with me. And these two women were the only two that were believers out of the whole um, group of his students. And, and that moment was so healing for me because they just sat and carried my sadness and my burdens. 
They didn't expect me to have a, a spiritual response or anything. They just wanted to cry with me. Those ladies understood presence. Yes. Like absolutely. how to be, mm-hmm. to give somebody just the presence. Yeah. Uh, honestly, like, I love that. When you told me that yesterday, I was a mess and I've still got tears <laughs> in my eyes. <laughs> I think I see you do too. But just that idea that two women mm-hmm. would just come in. Even, I mean, you didn't know them at that point. That mm-hmm. was your first meeting. And they walked into your house, into your pain. Mm-hmm. They sat down and they joined you in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They didn't try to fix it. Mm-hmm. They didn't try to take it away. Nope. They just sat with you in it. Yeah. That is probably one of the most beautiful moments I've ever heard somebody describe for me. Oh, it was such a gift and a treasure. And they had no idea at the time what God was using them to do. Because from that, all of a sudden I realized I need to be reaching out to these women. So I contacted my friend Grace and her and I started a German brunch group. And every Thursday, we invited all of the wives um, to our home. And we had brunch, and we shared fellowship, and we would use holidays and any little thing and make a gospel theme. And it became this amazing experience in my life where I felt like I was doing missions in my back door. I didn't have to go anywhere. God brought the <laughs> nations to me. It was so fruitful, and the relationships were so rich and deep. And I just grew to love these women so much, and we spent time together with our families, and it was just such a a prolific time of ministry, and I have a tendency, I have learned that when God gives me something good, instead of holding it with my hands open, I clinch onto it with all of my might. You hold on to it. I hold on to it, and, and that was another thing I held on to, so another reason I wasn't going to Southeast Asia then became... We have this amazing ministry going on right here. And so why would I possibly ever consider walking away or leaving? And so I clenched onto it with all my fist, and I held on um, until one night I was lying in bed. And this was right whenever, um, I don't know if you all remember, like when ISIS kind of really made a surge into the Middle East and they were invading all of Iraq. We and had. They're just doing Yeah, we had friends that did our training with us originally way back when, and that's where they went into northern Iraq, and they were Mm -hmm. still living there at the time. And we got a prayer alert in the middle of the night, please pray for this family, I can't say any names, because ISIS has just entered the northern border of their city. They had two young children, and they had already had the option to leave, and they chose to stay. And I was sitting there in my bed, and... The Lord, I'm not saying the Lord spoke to me, but this is the thought that ran into my head was they have chosen to stay knowing it could very well mean all of their lives. And I was unwilling to even ask the Lord if he wanted me to go. Oh, that hit me like a load of concrete on the head. And I'm back in this Abraham moment where I realize I am not being Abraham. I'm not even willing to ask the Lord if he wants me to go. He might not even tell me to go. I'm not even willing to ask. And so I, ha- I was confronted with my inability to surrender, my unwillingness to surrender. And so from that moment on, my prayers about moving to Southeast Asia changed. And then God transformed my heart, and it actually became the desire of my heart to go. So I told my husband, okay, let's go. And really, we ended up leaving within four months. So Which is really fast. So fast, especially since I had resisted for about two solid years um, a funny story about that was whenever we decided we were, go- we were going, God called us to go. I have four young kids. My oldest at that time was 10. And so she's just at this 
precipice of puberty where she has opinions about where she's going. And she wasn't so excited. And so I, I was telling you yesterday, I thought, well, I'm going to go to the library. I'm going to get all these awesome, cool books about this country. And we're going to, like, explore all the exciting <laughs> things. And so I open up the book. I didn't skim it. First paragraph says the country, and it's like, most volatile geographic region in all of the world with, you know, thousands of active volcanoes and, like, all these horrible things, <laughs> tsunamis and earthquakes. And I'm just like, never mind, let's talk about something else. <laughs> never mind, like, backtrack, backtrack. It's one of those mommy moments yeah. that goes crash and burn. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. All their anticipation turned to dread and fear, and they're like, uh-huh, we no. can never go there. Um, but we, we did end up going, um, and I can't say that it was an easy transition, but there was something fundamentally different about this time than when we went to Africa. Because when we went to Africa, I was going with this really terrible understanding of what it meant to obey the Lord, and it was obedience that reaped benefit or that didn't reap judgment or something. I was basically just doing it because I was afraid of, of not doing it, and I thought if I did obey, then I'll be blessed. But when we went to Southeast Asia, it was, Lord, you have been so good to me. We had went through the loss of the baby and his faithfulness, the experience with the German families, and it just he had provided in so many amazing ways faithfulness in times of struggle. I just wanted to obey him because I wanted to, to just express my love for him. I just wanted to surrender, and I wanted to walk out my faith. And so I kind of went to Southeast Asia with an entire different perspective, kind of like, all right, struggle, here you come, and I am ready. Like, I'm going to stand this time, not in my own strength, but in my desire to be surrendered to him. And so if suffering comes, it's through his hand, and I'm going to accept it. And it was an entirely different experience. Our children really struggled the first year, our oldest, namely. Um, I, I, I began thinking like she was somebody else's kid. Like, what happened to my daughter? She started puberty, and then mm-hmm. it was just you know cultural struggles and trying to meet kids her age. And it, it was really, really hard. But there were so many amazing things that happened that first term. And he opened up so many opportunities for us to engage with locals and, and get involved in ministry. And Now, how, okay, you talked about the first term, and I'm assuming that's like a year. So how many, how long is this? Well, a first term is four years. Okay. So the, we have, every organization has different cycles. And so for okay. us, usually you're on the field four, and you come home for six months to a year. And then, okay. So our first term was about four years. And, and in that four-year period, through the struggle of my children, um, God opened so many doors. We learned that children are an open door anywhere. Mm-hmm. Most cultures, even if they hate you, they're going to just love kids. And so connecting with other people who had kids the same age as us became very easy. But before we had left the U.S., my children had gotten involved through our church in different outreaches for orphan care and, and just helping clean water and we get, we get to Southeast Asia, and they were like, well, what do we do here? It's great that you guys are here, but we feel like we have no purpose. So we started trying to figure out ways and outlets for them to feel like they were involved, and God used that to open up some amazing doors. We got involved with a local orphanage because I thought my kids could hold babies. But when we got there, we realized just the need for um, training the staff to understand the developmental needs of kids 
understanding trauma and this orphanage is incredible it's um a safe house for women unwed mothers in the culture that we're from if you get pregnant outside of marriage it's very very shameful for the entire family so the women are pressured to have abortions and the director just felt like they were going to lose an entire generation of of people if they didn't step and do something so they started this orphanage and it's a safe house for women and the babies are born there and they can have a safe place for their pregnancy, and then they can choose. If the circumstances change, take the baby home or leave it there, no questions asked. Most of the time, they're left there. So they're born, and then they're just placed in a bed. So the vision is amazing, but there is a lot of stuff to do that well that needed to, to be adjusted. And so, Well, and what we had talked about... Um, this is kind of where we connect because of just the counseling background that I have and Mm -hmm. um, that kind of stuff with you. And um, you were kind of just describing that because their resources were so limited and they didn't have the knowledge, Mm -hmm. you know, they they weren't as aware of the needs of infants. And so you had some of the flat head, Mm -hmm. you had the underdevelopment because there wasn't the stimulation that babies Mm -hmm. need. You know, there was a lot of that kind of stuff. And as a mom, mm-hmm. that's what hit you when you yeah, walked in. absolutely. I, I would leave there and I would think about those babies being left in a bed for the entire day. And I'm going to go home and I'm going to snuggle mine and kiss their cheeks and how much I touch them and even play with their feet. And it just would really, really bother me. And the first time we went, there was a little boy that was sitting in a corner. And at the time, we thought he was on the autistic spectrum, autism spectrum. He didn't engage, and his eyes were just spacey. And my oldest daughter just immediately was drawn to him. And so his name was Anton, and so he kind of became our family's goal there. We actually wanted to adopt him. He spent the weekend at our house, and that weekend he was at our house. He completely changed. He lit up. And so I was realizing this little boy needs a family. He needs Mm. stimulated and so we went to the director and we said, Anton needs a family and we'll adopt him. But we found out that um, that's illegal for foreigners to adopt and anybody who has more than one child, foreigner or not, is not allowed to adopt. Well, we had five because our first year there, um, I left this out, but we surprisingly ended up pregnant. And so I had, after I lost that last baby, I was never going to try to have any more. And we ended up getting pregnant with Hosea, and he was born there. And he was the gift that I didn't ask for. And the um, the locals loved that I had a baby there. For them, it was like, you actually stayed and had a baby. And so he became, you know, a local to so many. And they loved watching and being part of his, of my pregnancy and him growing up. And in this culture, your neighbor is your family. That's a very communal culture. It's so beautiful. We've lost that a lot in the, the westernized cultures. We've, we're mm-hmm. so individualistic. Yeah. But communal, communal cultures are so beautiful in that. And so if you have a burden, it's everybody's burden. And, and if you have something to celebrate, everybody celebrates them. So mm-hmm. we had a little baby there. And so I was having a baby and then seeing these babies and realizing the grave difference in mm-hmm. just affection and love. And, and so we... Um, uh, we were able to do a training at the orphanage in crisis care. And then through that, we connected with a local woman who had studied therapy in the U.S. And she knew all these different kinds of therapies. And I had asked her. Who ended up being a Christian, by yeah, the way, which yes. is total God thing. Yes, absolutely. Because in the country that we're from, um, that is a minority. It's a, a Muslim majority there. And so she 
agreed to do an assessment on on them, the little boy. So I, I had just determined, fine, if you won't let me adopt him, I'm just going to pretend like he's mine. And so I told her I was bringing her a little boy to pretend like he's mine. We're going to pay for him like he's our own child and whatever therapy he needs, he needs help. She did an assessment, and she said, I can help him. I need to see him three times a week. She lived on the other side of town, went to the director. I knew she was going to refuse because of just the, the time and the effort and all that. But whenever I went to her, she came back and said, yes, can I send five more at the same time? Well, (laughs) I had agreed to pay for one, and I didn't even ask how much. And so then when I thought about the the cost of adding five more, I was like, we're not going to be able to afford this. What am I going to do? So I go to the therapist, and I'm like, hey, so how much does it cost for, like, a session? And her response to me was just another one of those moments when you just realize, like, God is so sovereign and he's just working. And she's like, oh, Jess, before you ever contacted me, I had prayed to the Lord and I had said, God, I want a project, something to use my talents and skills for those in need. I would not take any money for any of them. I'm doing this all for free. For over two years, she met with those children three times, up until COVID, three times a week, giving them therapy. Other kids added in. Within two weeks, that little boy, Anton, was a completely different kid. We walked in after he had two weeks of meeting with her, and instead of sitting aloof in a corner, non-respondent, he ran up to us, and he hugged us. His eyes were twinkly, and she just did basic things like massaging his feet, healing touch, and just stimulated him to unlock you know, the activity in his brain so that he would engage instead of shut down. And it was an incredible experience, and, and God just began to develop all kinds of different programs with volunteers, and we were able to just help kind of get other people involved in caring for them in different ways that they hadn't thought about before. And so it was an amazing experience. And for my kids, it was a dream because what kid doesn't dream of like holding babies all day in an orphanage and being involved? And so it was such a gift. And um, that led to other things. We we were able to get involved with, uh, we play ultimate frisbee with the college students from the college job that my husband had. And we're like the old ones that are, everybody's like, oh, that's so cute that you still play, right? We get to, <laughs> to this country, and they have never seen the sport before. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly we are like superstars. Like we are the ones that know how to play, and which always made me laugh because I thought if people in the U.S. could see that they call me the MVP, they would <laughs> laugh me off of a field. <laughs> and so we um, started playing ultimate frisbee. And We just did it with a way to connect with students. We had no idea that God was going to use it to launch this incredible opportunity to engage with students at a a Muslim university. We were able to help coach a team there. And and it was just the small little things that you don't even realize that God's going to use. All he wants is your yes, you know. And so I am not a Frisbee player at all. But God used my willingness to throw that disc and he did something amazing and beautiful. And that's how he is, I think, in all of our lives. He's after our yes. He's not concerned about how well we perform. Yeah. It's just our, our surrender. I love that. I, I actually am kind of sitting on a quote that kind of says uh, the similar thing. It's, um, it's actually from the sermon on Sunday. Um, it says, we don't always get to see what follows our faithfulness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Love that. But mm-hmm. I love that's that, good. I mean, here, it's your faithfulness. It's your faithfulness to follow out in obedience what... God has put in front of you, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I love the way you put it. It's your yes, you know, giving mm-hmm. God that yes. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Well, I think that concludes today's podcast. Thanks for joining us. And we're going to have Jess on us with another one coming up. So see you next week. Thanks for listening today. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. We'd love to hear from you, so find us on Facebook and Instagram at Open the Word Podcast or send us an email to openthewordpodcast at gmail.com. Is it time for you to plan a day trip with your peeps? Come and stay a while at Shia Market in Berlin. There is something for everyone, no matter what your taste or style may be. Visit the Village Gift Barn for your custom floral arrangements and timeless accessories for your home. Stroll upstairs to Shia's Style Boutique for your perfect outfit, everything from accessories to shoes. Be inspired at country gatherings with decor from Modern Farmhouse to transitional design. Then meander through the gardens for a large selection of houseplants. And last but not least, order your perfect cup of brew at the Buggy Brew Coffee Company. End your day by gathering to relax in our courtyard. You will leave feeling connected and refreshed. Step back in time with a stay at one of the oldest buildings in historic Berlin, Ohio, the Worthman House. This charming building has a rich history with origins dating back to as early as the mid-1800s. The newly restored two-bedroom, one-bathroom suite has hardwood floors and gorgeous chestnut trim throughout. It is also outfitted with locally made Amish furniture. It can sleep six and offers a beautiful panoramic view of Berlin's Main Street. Its location in the heart of Berlin is an ideal spot for walking to various restaurants and shops. Book your stay at the Worthman House through VRBO.